You're listening to a sermon from Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas. We exist to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today I'm going to be reading from Matthew 9, 1 through 8. And if you have the black Bibles below your chairs, it's going to be found on page 673. Or 6, or excuse me, I've mixed that up. 763. All right, Matthew 9, it says. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic, lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, What do you think is, excuse me, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father God, uh, we just thank you for today. Uh, We thank you for another day here on this planet that you've given us. And just thank you for so many great, wonderful gifts and blessings that you've bestowed upon us. Uh, I just ask that you remind us just to have faith like the paralytic and his friends. Uh, It's just wonderful to see just such faith that they bring him on a bed, fully knowing the power that you bestow and that their sins can be forgiven just by a snap of a finger. Um, I just praise that. I just praise you for that, and I magnify that and just shows that you're faithful and that you're for us here and now and every day. Uh, I just want to pray for Central as well. Uh, I pray that your, your Holy Spirit is moving within these halls, that you help the teachers, the students, the faculty, staff, that they can see your mercy and that they can ultimately find you um, who gives life. Uh, yeah, Lord. I just thank you again for today. It's wonderful to be here, uh, and I ask that you use Casey to speak through you, uh, and hopefully, hopefully, uh, will hopefully give us a new insight into this very familiar passage. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Well, good morning. Uh, My name's Casey. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, man, if you're with us for the first time, uh, we are working through the Gospel of Matthew together. And man, we're so glad you're here. Um, and actually, I, I want to start off just a little bit different. I want to start off, uh, we're going to start off praying together. And uh, you know, sometimes I have a, a, a question or a little story. Uh, sometimes the goal of the introduction or the story is just so, if you don't know me, you might say, well, I don't hate that guy. Maybe I'll listen. Um, but when we're really desperate, uh, we go to prayer. And so let me pray for us. Um, <clears throat> Lord Jesus, man, we have the ability to pray because you sent the Holy Spirit and you garnished um, the way for the Holy Spirit by entering in, living a life uh, for us that can't be denied by God's justice and then dying upon the cross to atone for our sin so that the presence of God can dwell with us. Believer, do you know what that means? That, that, mean, that means because of the good work of Jesus, you can be acceptable to God and you don't have to wonder this world alone that the Holy Spirit of God can indwell inside of you because of the work of Jesus. Father, Lord, as we look at this passage, Lord, we see an intermingling of, of faith. Friends who love their suffering friend and will do anything to get their friend before Jesus because they just want the suffering to stop. Are you suffering? Lord Jesus, I pray that you would turn things over on our heart and we would have a clearer view of hurt and suffering. Um, Lord, that maybe we have harbored and bittered or maybe we have held it to you over and over and over again. And Lord, we need the people of God to come and lower us before you. 
Lord, don't just give us a clear picture of our suffering. Give us a clear picture of hope. But Lord, also give us a clear picture of what we need more than the alleviation of our suffering, Lord Jesus. We need the pronouncement of our sins are forgiven. And so right now, I just want to remind you as your head's down and your eyes closed that because of Jesus, your sins are forgiven. The description that we find in the Psalms before even Jesus showed up was they are cast away from the east to the west, like never to collide again because of the gracious blood of Jesus. You have forgiveness of sin, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God, and a promise to never be left nor forsaken. And all of God's promises find their yes in Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would use uh, the scriptures, not, not my words, and Evan was right. Hopefully we'll get some insight. <laughs> I pray that you would use the scriptures, not my words, and the Holy Spirit uh, to change us in the moment. Lord, it's because of your precious work. Because of your promises, we can say in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> okay. Um, as we look at this, man, I want to kind of make you familiar with the text. And so the first thing I, I want you to see is we turn kind of into the new chapter. So we've been in Matthew 8 for a little while, and, and we've seen Jesus by his word, by his word commanding sickness, uh, demons, uh, by his word commanding storms, uh, by his word we see, you know, we see demons happen twice. And last week we talked a lot about what does uh, demonic influence and what does it mean that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against principalities and rulers and all these different levels that are weighed against us. And man, I wish, I, I do this all the time, I wish I would have talked to my city group beforehand. And actually, Kinsey and I, uh, my wife, we were talking about this. And, and one of the pictures that we kind of came up with was how demonic influence happens in our lives. Like, and one thing is kind of like a pushing and a pulling. And so like in, in a pushing, like it happens like this, man, things that shouldn't feel as heavy might feel heavier because uh, demonic influence against your life, the enemy presses on it and says, no, this is a huge deal. And so you've always, we've all seen people get really upset or really, really sad or really, really hurt, and it seems disproportionate. Now, sometimes that's because there's a story there. Like that is reminding them of another pain that hasn't been dealt with. And so certainly that's there. But like just to take this idea, what if there is an enemy of God who hates the works of God, but 1 John 3, like we have this great promise that Jesus came to destroy the works of Satan. Like we have that great promise, but he loves to push on things to make you more bitter or more angry or to lean deeper into lies. But, but sometimes I think the enemy also pulls. And so we were talking about this, like also pulls on our lives. And so the things that should have more weight in our lives, like the conviction or brokenness of my sin, or like, you know, like feeling like sadness and hurt, like compassion for a broken world, or feeling urgency for the neighbors next door, not just because they annoy you, like actually feeling urgency for them, like the things that should have more weight in your life, like demonic influence pulls on it so it doesn't feel as important or as heavy. So then we get the picture that we wrestle not just against flesh and blood, but there's something else going on. And so by the power of prayer, we take it before God. And by the power of prayer, we take other people before God. And here we see some friends taking their suffering friend before God. Desperate. Desperate to get him in front of Jesus. De desperate with belief, like maybe, you know, Jesus did this for other people. I've heard what he's done. Will he help my friend who's suffering? But this, something else about this passage, in Matthew, this is the turn. You know, right now, Jesus is pretty popular. People kind of like him. I mean, he's doing some heavy lifting. They, they're, they're supportive. And all of a sudden, in Matthew chapter 9, a lot of theologians, they say the shadow of the cross has now crossed Jesus' path because he starts to make bigger claims and he makes a claim that only God can make and the scribes and the Pharisees hear it and they say, how dare you? And so suddenly, like if this was a movie, like, you know, the tone of the music would 
darker. There would be something in this that gets eerie as Jesus looks to the cross and he says, listen, you have to wrestle with who I really am, not who you want me to be. I am far more than a teacher. I am far more than a miracle worker. I'm far more than someone who stands on the earth and has authority over darkness. I am God with us. God made man. And from here on, now the scribes and Pharisees are finding all kinds of problems with Jesus. And those problems are going to grow. And they're going to grow. And they're going to end with the crucifixion of God that we killed God. And so Matthew 9 is this turning point. But Matthew 9, we need to be careful. It's also offensive to us. Because it says that there is a problem deeper than the problem that we see and we don't necessarily always want to look at that problem but it's going to say that there's a problem deeper than your suffering or the hurt in your life and Jesus has to deal with that problem because it's the most dangerous problem in your life and so I, I want to look at three different groups and we're we, we hope we're kind of part of the first group we're definitely a part of the second group and we are definitely definitely part of the third group and so we're going to first look at the friends, just verses 1 and 2. Like, we're barely going to get in, we're going to look at the friends. And they had a problem. And then we're going to look at the paralytic. Uh, the paralytic definitely had a problem. It was obvious to everyone he had a problem. But Jesus points at a different problem. And then when Jesus points at that problem, we're going to look at the problems of the religious leaders because that evoked a problem in their life that they had to rectify. We either submit to the Lord Jesus Christ and believe him, or we crucify him. And so let's get started. So first, the friends, the paralytic friends had a problem. And their problem was they were crazy. Like they were crazy. So if you, if you have your Bible, like you can cross-reference this with, with Mark chapter 2 to get more of the picture. But man, they were crazy. And so let's just get started. Verse 1, it sets the scene. It says, and getting into the boat. And so this is after the, the settling of the storm with a word. This is after seeing the demoniacs, and that was crazy and scary, and Jesus handled it with a word. And then the people come out, and they say, man, Jesus, we don't know if we can handle you. You go away, and he goes away. And so getting into the boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. Now, now in Mark chapter 2, it names a city. He came to his own city, being Capernaum. Like, this is not Bethlehem where he was born, not that own city. This is not Nazareth, where he grew up, not that own city. This is Capernaum, like his new home, his base for mission, where he would constantly come back and retreat. Like This was the place that he said, man, when I need rest, this is where I go. Although I don't have a house, it's where I go to feel like I'm at home. You know, the idea of home can be a little subjective. Like, like, you know, after Jesus was rejected from Nazareth, his boyhood city, you know, where they uh, said, you know, he opened up the scroll. We just read that not too long ago at the beginning of Matthew. I, I say not too long ago. You're like, that was like years ago. It, wasn't, it was not years ago. It was last year for sure, but it was not years ago. But he opened up the scroll and he read the words, you know, I've come to liberate the captives, to set free. The year of Jubilee is upon us. And then he closes it, sits down. Everyone's like, what's he going to say? And he sits down because that's where you taught from. You know, now you guys get to sit down and I have to stand up, which is better for me because, man, I got wiggles. You know, I know I don't pace, but man, I, I move. But like, so he sat down to teach and this is all he said. Behold, this prophecy is fulfilled in your hearing. I am the one who has come to set the captives free. I am the one to bring the year of jubilee here. I'm the one to cancel debt. I'm the one to make the blind see, the lame walk. I'm the one. And they were all like, man, this is incredible. And then the next scene, they get upset and they try to stone him and kill him. And so when Jesus let down you know, his friends and family that he grew up with, he found a new home. Like what we see in Capernaum is he recruits five of his disciples. You know, in, in Capernaum, he, he gets Peter, James, John, Andrew, and Matthew, the author of this book. Like it's where he recruits some of his friends. In Capernaum is where he healed and cast out demons, like did this meaningful work in, in Capernaum. It's where he healed Peter's mother-in-law and it says she got up and started cooking and, and, you know, taking care of him. And like the idea 
you know, of a place that you call home is this beautiful idea that Jesus gives. You know, it's kind of one of the reasons why we, uh, we, we do dinner in city group. You know, we do dinner in a city group because we want to kind of provide somewhat of a home, like somewhat of, of a group, a group that's put together uh, because of the gospel, not put together for anything else, but we gather together to talk about the scriptures, to find the gospel. And like, this is what you need to know. If you think about city group dinner, you're like, ah, it's okay. You need to know that there are some people in your city group. It is the best meal they have all week. And you know who they are because they always bring a bag of chips. Like that's all they can do. And they're doing it out of love. They are trying to do the best they can. They might be surviving on that. You might be keeping them alive. And so, like, listen, like, we want to, Jesus used tables to minister to others, and so we want to leverage tables to minister to other people. And so Jesus referred to Capernaum as his home, away from home, and it's a place where he did meaningful ministry. It's a place where he had meaningful friends. It's a place where he found a place that, you know, that brought him into the home. It, it's a place where a lot of ministry happened. And so we start off, we find ourselves in Capernaum. Look at verse 2. It keeps going. It says, And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a mat. Now, Matthew leaves out a lot here. Like, Mark tells us so much more. Like, Mark tells us that there were four friends who carried their paralyzed friend on a stretcher, and they couldn't get to the door because the crowd was so big. Everyone was gathering around. And so at some point, they said, man, let's go up to the roof, let's dig a hole, and let's just drop him down. Like, Mark tells us so much more. And he tells us, this guy's friends were crazy. Like, like, they were crazy. Like, they counted the cost and said, man, there is nothing that's going to deter us from getting our friend before Jesus. Like, so let's look at these. First off, they were persistent. And I argue that they were crazy persistent. Like, before you do the old dig a hole in the roof maneuver, you have to employ other offenses. Like, surely you pushed. Surely you pleaded. Surely you guilted. Like, people don't get out of your way. And you're like, are you serious? He can't walk. You know, surely you do other things before you go with the dig a hole in the roof. Like they were persistent. Do you have persistent friends like that? Like, like, do you have persistent friends who are pleading with you to see something that maybe you don't want to see or to ask you to take something that maybe is suffering and put it before the Lord and ask the Lord to do something? Do you have crazy, persistent friends? It's someone who are just trying to get you in a room with Jesus. Did someone trick you into this room this morning? Did someone tell you, hey, we're going to go volunteer at a middle school, and then they gave you a shirt and made you greet at a church? I mean, did someone trick you this morning? They had persistent friends. Do you need to be more persistent, more willing to step on toes, more willing to push and to plead for a friend who's suffering that you haven't done much for, but now you're saying, I see this, and the paralysis of this darkness in your life scares me. Take it before Jesus. And so the first thing we see is, man, they are crazy, persistent, but they're also like really, really creative. Like to come up with the idea of let's vandalize the house and cut a hole in the roof. You have to do some other ideas first. And I want to hear the conversation that happens after that idea. Like the first one of the friends says, you know what we could do? We could just dig a hole in the roof. Like there had to be some pushback on that idea. Like there had to be some like, are you serious? Like felonies. Your, your solution is a felony. Like there has to be some pushback on the cut a hole in the roof. The solution was creative. The solution was unyielding. The solution was persistent. The solution was, I'm not going to be pushed back. There is a need that we have to get before Jesus. It was also costly. Like, think about the love for their friend. It was costly. Like, they were willing to commit felonies, probably pay for the damages. And it was just a lot of work. 
Like, like if you read about the architecture of this time, like that kind of flat roof, people would have lived up there like when it was really, really hot. But like if you describe it, it would have cross timbers, kind of like joists that we would have, and they'd be separated by two to three feet. On top of that, you would lay little branches and brush perpendicular and just fill it as much as you can, just kind of covering to cover all areas. And then you would pack it with over a foot of dirt and sometimes plant grass on top of it. So literally, it's not cutting a hole in the roof. Literally, it is digging through about two feet of roof, something big enough to drop a friend through before Jesus. They were literally digging through a two foot deep roof, making a hole big enough to drop their friend down in front of Jesus. Like that is a lot of work. When was the last time you just dug a hole? Like just dug a hole. Like I, I, I built a fence and so, you know, the, uh, a hole uh, thing, you know, it's supposed to make it easier, but it just transfers all the pain to your shoulders and then, I don't know if you know about digging a hole in Lawrence, there is limestone everywhere. And so you dig down about six inches and then you hit something hard and then you just cry because you're like, oh, we're not going any further than that. And like digging is hard. It's not complicated. Like no one says, man, I don't really understand the concept of digging. Like it's, comp- it's not complicated. Like dig, it's just hard work. Sometimes being a friend who wants to get your friend who's suffering before Jesus is hard work. These friends, they, they push through the crowds. They, they probably push through disapproving looks. They push through opposition and judgment. They push through dirt and timbers. I bet they had to push through disbelief along the way. Surely at some point they said, man, this is crazy. What are we doing? Like, will this even work? Is Jesus going to be angry? Like, this is like his friend's home. Like, at some point they had to say, will this even work? And it doesn't tell us how much faith they had, but clearly they had enough faith to keep digging. And and look at what Jesus does. In verse 2, it goes on. It says, and when Jesus saw their faith, enough faith to keep them going, just enough faith to keep them going. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And so since Jesus saw their faith, the four felons, he saw their faith, and he looks to his hurting friend, and he says this, he says, take heart heart. Like, like, take heart. Like, I, I, I'm trying to comfort you. Take heart. Like, this is saying at least two things to us. This is saying that the faith of others can move you. It moved him from the outskirts into the room before Jesus. The faith of others can move you. It's also telling us that your faith for others can move God. Jesus looked at their faith, and he looked at the paralytic, and he says, your sins are forgiven. And so like in this moment, it's like, do you see someone else's pain? Do you want to carry it for them but don't know how? This says that the solution is to push through obstacles to just try to get them in the same room with Jesus. This says that you don't have to have great faith, just enough faith to not quit. Just enough faith to keep going. And so we see this faithful endurance of these friends Like they had the best problem. Unyielding friendship that refuses to let their suffering friend lie alone. Man, may we be friends like that. Now I just want to ask you this. Do you need to be a friend like that for someone? Or do you have some friends doing that to you right now? Because if you have friends doing that to you, you are the luckiest. So the first, we see the problem with the friends. Second, we see the paralytic. And the paralytic had a problem. And his problem was deeper than what he thought or what he knew. Matter of fact, it wasn't even the problem that they were taking to Jesus to solve. But Jesus goes straight to it. And so look at verse 2 again. It says, And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son. Now, take heart, my son. It, it, it's, it's a phrase to say it, it's going to be okay. It's a phrase to say, I've got this. To say, like, there is hope for you. To have courage. I'm here. Comfort is coming. I can and will handle this. Like, it's a phrase to say, I see you. Gird up just a little bit more courage because I'm about to act. I see your pain. I see your problem. I'm here to help and to comfort. I'm here to fix this. The problem 
But then he says this, verse 2, your sins are forgiven. Now, if you're familiar with the story, it's anticlimactic. You're like, I knew that was going to happen. Um, it's like when you, you watch a, a kind of that thriller movie or the, you know, the, the scary movie, not the scary movie where everyone just is, you know, gore and all that kind of, the scary movie where things jump out at you, you know, um, and you get that kind of, oh, gosh, okay, I didn't see that coming. Uh, that kind of scary movie. Now, after you've seen the movie, it doesn't have the same effect, but like this would have been the moment where everyone is like, man, Jesus has healed so many people. Is he going to be mad about the roof? Is he going to, what's he going to do? Is he going to heal him? Are we going to have a dance party down in this house? What are we going to do? And he says, your sins are forgiven. And everyone kind of would have been like, that's not why we're here. Everyone kind of would have deflated just a little bit and said, Jesus, it's obvious to everyone in the room that we didn't come here for Sunday school answers we came here for something different. We don't want you to talk to his soul. We want you to talk to his legs. He can't walk. Can you imagine what that felt like? You know, we, we don't know how long he'd been paralyzed. We don't know if there was some sort of accident or if he was born that way. But can you imagine what it's like to be tied to a mat, dependent upon others to take you anywhere, never able to look at people in the eye or stand on your own volition, never able to do things for yourself, but always leaning and feeling like a pariah and a burden to others. Can you imagine how you thought about walking? Like, can you imagine the things you would have said in your heart? Like, if I could only walk, like if I could only walk, all my problems would go away. If I could only walk, I would be happy. If I didn't have this kind of suffering, I would never complain. I would never be angry again. I would never have sadness. I would never be uncomfortable or disappointed. If I could only walk, if this suffering was only taken from me, can you imagine how he looked at other people who said, man, I have to walk to school. Like, oh, really, you're going to complain about that? Or, or, man, I had to run extra laps at practice. Really, that's the biggest problem in your life. Or, my feet are sore. I would love to feel my feet. See, suffering has a way of magnifying, you know, your hurts, which these hurts are severe, and then comparing and juxtaposing of what you see in other people's lives and causing something in your soul to say, if only, then I would blame. Suffering has a way of moving us. And so he was very aware of his suffering. And listen, it was suffering. But Jesus knew there was a deeper problem beneath his suffering. Jesus knew that his sin was a bigger problem than his suffering. Now, now listen, like, hold on. I, get that, I, I realize that is a uh, controversial statement, especially in our culture, to say that your suffering, my suffering, our suffering, not our biggest problem. Jesus and the Bible as a whole says there is a deeper problem that has more magnitude, that is more dangerous than the suffering of humanity. And Jesus definitely cares about the suffering of humanity. And if you, don't, if you aren't sure, look back at chapter 8 and look at all the things that he's doing to alleviating the suffering of humanity. But in this moment, he points to something deeper than the suffering. And he's saying what the Bible says very, very loudly, that sin is a deeper problem for us and our souls than any suffering that we might endure. Like that is not saying that suffering isn't a big deal and that it hasn't happened and that God doesn't want to deal with it. 1 John 3, 8 says, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil and the works of the devil are suffering. But, but that, that's not saying that Jesus didn't see and care about the suffering either. He's not going to ignore the suffering, but he addresses a more dangerous problem that everyone didn't see nearly as big of a deal. Like, surely they would have said, like, these good Jewish people, they would have said, yes, sin is a problem. But in that moment, they would have said, no, this suffering is the biggest problem. The danger of suffering 
First off, let's, let's say some things about suffering. Suffering is real. Suffering enters our life because of just the brokenness of this world, and sometimes that means it doesn't work properly. Suffering enters our life because of the brokenness in our soul that's bent away that naturally builds up selfishness and desire of what I want. Suffering enters our lives because of the sin of others, suffering that is laid before us, that is done to us, that affects us, that hurts us, and sometimes hurts us on a deep, deep level. Suffering is real. Jesus doesn't deny that, but he looks deeper and he says, listen, there is something beneath that. The the brokenness of this world has brought you pain. The sin in people who have hurt you has brought you pain. But it creates a new danger in our lives. Like, what do I do when I encounter pain and suffering? What will I believe about God, others, myself? What will I become because of that? The conclusion and actions that follow your suffering, that drives down deep into your soul, that potential sin that it aggravates, Jesus is saying they are deep and it is soul-killing and it's a problem that only Jesus can fix. Jesus saw the paralyzed man's suffering, but he saw a deeper problem, sin under it. Jesus is saying, I see your legs, but they aren't your biggest problem. There's a more dangerous problem under your problem. Your problem is much deeper, and only I can reach that problem. So Jesus knew something that this man didn't. Jesus knew something that his friends didn't know. Jesus knows something that we need to know. This man had a much bigger problem than his physical condition. And Jesus is saying, I see your problem, but I see something deeper and more dangerous. Do you see that problem? Now just, I asked you, do you have friends like this? But now I'm asking this. We can be very aware of the suffering. We say, man, God, if you just take this away, I'll be okay. What if that is persisting between these two phrases and Jesus is holding off to deal with that thing because he's pointing to something deeper that's more dangerous? And we are so prone to think like this. Like we think, like we go to other things to save us. And we don't use that language because we know it's not right. But we go to things like career and we say, man, if I could have that kind of career, it would fix me and make me happy. Or we go to things like relationship. If I had that kind of boyfriend, or that kind of girlfriend or that kind of husband or that kind of wife or that kind of family or that kind of peer group. If I had that sort of thing, then I would never feel sad or lonely. Or if I was more successful, then I would never feel unsure or weak. I would be confident and strong. If I had this, then it would fix me. And Jesus knows that's not true. Jesus knows that even if he, he's about to miraculously heal this guy and he's about to be able to run, one day he's going to complain about sore feet. He knows that. Not in the first month, not in the second month, and in moments he'll talk himself out of it, but one day he'll complain about it. He knows that that won't fix him because there's something deep inside of him that needs to be healed. And, and so the paralytic and everyone around saw that walking is what would quote unquote, save him. But Jesus saw the danger of his sin and he presses in even deeper. And so we are in danger of going to the savior because we go to Jesus. We're in danger of going to Jesus and asking for a lesser savior that's not going to fix us because we think this is the chief problem. And sometimes Jesus just looks at us and he says, I know you don't see the problem that I see, the cancer that's welling deep inside of your heart, but I'm here to save you. And so we see this picture of the friends had a problem, and it was the best problem, man. They were crazy, persistent, and desperate to get the hurting friend in front of Jesus. We see the paralyzed man had this problem, and it was a problem. He didn't even know he was taken to Jesus. It was underneath all of his suffering. But then we see a new problem. The religious leaders have a problem. They didn't want Jesus to be Jesus. And so like we're in danger of creating a Jesus that isn't Jesus at all. And that's why the apostles wrote the gospels down. Like that's why Matthew eventually wrote this down. As they were aging, they hadn't been writing the accounts. They were going around sharing the accounts. 
And most scholars think they wrote, you know, sayings and some of the things that happened on smaller accounts. But as they were aging, they said, man, we have to write all of this down so people know what Jesus actually said and what he actually did, because there's a bend inside of us to want to create Jesus to kind of reflect us, which is actually a really horrible savior. And so they wrote it down. And so look at what says in verse three, it says, and behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. Now the Mark account spells the blasphemy out. In Mark 2 verse 7 it says, it goes on, he is blaspheming and he's saying this, who can forgive sins but God alone? Matthew doesn't add it because Matthew would not have needed to add it. Every good Jew that heard this would have been like, man, Jesus, you can't say stuff like that. And so Matthew is showing us something that Jesus was claiming that is incredibly radical, that is like the pinnacle of all things, that is not just like I have power over demons, it's not just I have power over sickness, it's not even I have power over the elements. It's saying I have power to forgive sins. And so let's just look at a couple things. This is saying Jesus can see your thoughts and your motives. Look at verse 4. It says, And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said... Why do you think evil in your heart? Now, this is the second time he's done this. And so he's already done it before. Like, he did it when he forgave the paralytic his sins. Like, we know from the scriptures, like, saving faith follows a pattern. Like, there's a moment where you realize your sin, and you say, I need help with my sin. I can't, you know, I can't get to God on my own. I need Jesus. I need you to rescue me. And I see Jesus. I see you as Lord and Savior. Now, the, the paralytic didn't say that. He, he didn't say anything. And so this isn't standing in contrast to what the Bible, it's saying that Jesus can see inside of our hearts and inside of our souls, and he can touch us what doesn't even get verbalized. And this actually gives me so much hope. This means in the moments when you don't even know how to pray and you are desperate and you are searching for words to articulate something, Romans 8 says that the Holy Spirit can intercede for you knowing your heart and the heart of God and can connect those things together. Jesus can perceive what is troubling you even when you don't know what is troubling you. But it happens here again. And so in verse 4, he looks into the hearts of the scribes and the Pharisees and he sees their disgust and disbelief and Jesus doesn't flinch. He doesn't scramble. He doesn't restate it and say, man, I know I offended you. You know, don't be, you know, don't be so hard on me. Remember all the good things I've done. He pushes in deeper. Jesus sees their disbelief and confronts them about it, and he does it to us also. Like we, we've been pushing the, the Seeking Jesus Together Bible reading plan in, in the journals, and yeah, the beginning of it, you know, the first of the semester, I mean, we kind of preach through different passages, and you know, the first part of it, you kind of start with this reflection of yourself, like, where are you? And man, this week, kind of talking with a reflection of myself, man, I kind of just started writing down, man, what do I feel? And I'm not very good at what do I feel. And so I have to use the, the feeling wheel. Um, and don't be ashamed if you have to use the feeling wheel. And you know, I kind of work on the outside and I work in. And then I always find myself, man, I'm scared again. Why am I always scared? <laughs> you know? uh, and I find myself kind of in that wedge. I don't even need the rest of the wheel. Like, I just need a wedge. Um, but like working through the wheel, I kind of started to put words to it of like, man, I kind of feel trapped. Like, I kind of feel like I'm unable to get through this thing. Like, no matter what I do, it doesn't just seem to, to get loose. Like, I kind of feel like maybe you don't care that I'm trapped in this. Like, I feel like maybe I'm abandoned. And so, like, I usually need more than the section that I have. And so I borrow room um, on the next page. But I kind of put that together. And then I read in the Bible reading, Acts 12. And so in the Bible reading, Acts 12, James gets martyred. Church history says beheaded. So James gets beheaded. And then Peter gets imprisoned. And so let's put beheaded in the bad category and let's look prison in the like imprisoned trap category. And so all of a sudden I'm like, man, I'm reading the scriptures about something that I feel like, do you even see me? Do you even care? And then I'm like, oh man, he's trapped. I feel trapped. And then it goes on that the church was praying for Peter and he gets out and then they were surprised the prayer worked. Like I didn't know that was going to work. And so then, you know, he works out and then I'm thinking, well, how did how does the family of James feel? You know, James gets martyred and killed, 
And Peter gets released. Like maybe they were kind of bitter about that. And then I just kind of ask this question. How do I think James feels about that now? Like, do you think James is up in heaven is like, man, Jesus, you really gave me a raw deal. I mean, I know the streets of gold and the pearly gates. It's great. But are you serious? And so like trying to work through, like how do you think he feels now? Do you think James agrees? And so, man, the good news of what we see here, even though it's a rebuke, is the God of the universe can see things beneath you and can reach down and can confront those things and can feel those things and can show you what is deep lying inside of you. See, this Jesus can see thoughts and motives, but this Jesus can forgive sins. Like the religious leaders were offended because Jesus just claimed that he could forgive sins and only God can forgive sins. So Jesus is standing before them and saying, look at me, I will forgive sins. I will do what only God can do. Jesus was claiming to be more than a good teacher and more than a miracle worker. Jesus was claiming to be Lord of the universe and it made them furious. Look at verse five. In verse 5, it says, For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk. And this is like so, bless you, this is so brilliant that commentaries, like, you know, they write, they write about this a lot, like, well, which is easier to say? And they like then have nerdy arguments about what's easier to say. Is it easier to say uh, your sins are forgiven? And so maybe it's because you can't test that. Like, no one can say, that's not true. Or is it easier to heal legs and say, man, rise and walk because it's testable? And so they talk about which one it is. And I just want to ask it in just a different way. Like, which is easier? Which is harder? I want to ask by the biblical witness which is harder to accomplish, the healing of the body or the restoration of the soul? And so, like, look back at where we've been. Like, Jesus right here heals the paralytic with a command. Like, he's about to say, get up and go home, verse 7. I didn't mean to ruin it for you. Verse 7, we're about to get there. With a word, get up and go home, a command. But, but he cast out demons with one word. I mean, look back at chapter 8, verse 32. He just says, go, and the demons are gone. They kill all the pigs, no more bacon, everyone's sad. I mean, it's just gone. Or he stops a storm in verse 26 of chapter 8, where he just stands up and he rebukes it. We don't really know. I mean, he just says, kind of hushes it, says, be still. And so all of a sudden, we have a command, we have one word, we have a standing and a word spoken, and he doesn't even have to be in hearing distance to heal the centurion's servant in verse 13 of chapter 8. Like merely speaking a word, he commands storms, he commands sickness, he commands Satan. But think about the Bible as a whole. Like if you read in Genesis, like it starts off pretty good. You know, God's creating the heavens and the earth. He creates everything. Man, this is good. This is good. Then he creates us and he says it's very, very good. And we like have a camping trip with God and then we blow it and we mess it all up. And that happens in chapter three, literally on page two. And then we have like 1,500 pages for this problem to be fixed. The undoing of your sin has a magnitude. The undoing of my sin has a magnitude that we want to say, surely it's easy. It's God's job to forgive. But the unpacking of that takes up all of the scriptures of how is it going to happen? And we know because of history and we know because of the gospels and we know how to apply it because of the epistles that what took our forgiveness of sin was Jesus going to the cross and his body being broken and his blood being spilled, and our sins being laid upon him, and him absorbing the wrath of God so that we could have the Holy Spirit and be reconnected to God. And so the, the picture of this is a scary idea of what is beneath your suffering. What might God want, might want to be doing about that? And can Jesus forgive sin? Look at verse 6. He says, But that you may know that the Son of Man, me, has authority on earth to forgive sins. 
And so he's saying, so that you may know that I have authority only God can have. Then he says to the paralytic, rise up uh, your bed and go home. Rise, pick up your bed and go home. In verse seven, it says, and he rose and he went home. And then look at the response and all the crowd saw it and they were afraid and they glorified God that he had given such authority to men. that you can know I have the power to forgive sins and to work with your darkest, deepest problem, the problem that can separate from God for all of authority. Rise, pick up your mat and go home. And they marveled and they feared God. And they said, oh my goodness, how could this even happen? How has God given such authority to men? The point of Matthew 9, the point of healing the paralytic was Jesus wants to deal with suffering. He hates suffering. It makes him mad. But the point of all of that is he wants you to see him as more than a man, someone who came in, God who entered in to take upon the sins of the world that whoever calls upon his name will be saved. Now let's back up and we'll just land the plane. When I asked you to think about a suffering, did you think about something? I mean, maybe it's a relational suffering, like you just feel misunderstood and it just doesn't seem to be fixed. Maybe it's a physical suffering, like, man, it keeps persisting and we can't find answers for. Like, maybe it's just like an emotional suffering, like something that just covers everything. And, man, you just want it gone. Like, wherever that is, like, that suffering is real. And I think Jesus can step in and can start to bear up and can start to fix these type of things. But what if he's waiting because he loves you too much to fix your suffering without addressing a more dangerous heart matter beneath it? What if Jesus loves you too much to give you what you want? Man, while I was studying this, I I thought about Romans 1, and you can go read it later. But Romans 1, like if you're categorizing it, it's really about people exchanging the truth of God for lies. And so then they worship uh, not that which is created, not the creator. But the scary thing about Romans 1 is what just happened on the other side of the lake. The people asked God, they asked Jesus to leave, and he left. And so what we see in Romans 1 is God gives the people what they actually want. And it fills their heart with not with what they wanted, but the byproduct of what they wanted. And so it's a moment where you resist Jesus. You say, no, no, I want it my way. I want it my way. And God finally says, okay. And so this is what it describes. Like we resist Jesus and God might just give us over to that. And in verse 29, it says, we get hearts full of unrighteousness, evil, contentiousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. God put that in so we can use it against our kids. Disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. They, they, though they knew God's righteous decrees that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. The forgiveness of sin and the changing our heart is a much harder thing to do. And the question is, has it happened to you? Is God doing that right now? He has the authority to do it, and he might be presenting it. Has it been accomplished for you? And it's his kindness to offer it to you so that then we could read a Romans 5 and just listen to these words. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, We have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Verse 6. For why we were still weak, at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Let me pray for us.
Lord, as we have an opportunity uh, to come to communion again and every week or to ask for prayer that we can do every week or to sit and contemplate in what you might said, Lord, I pray that you would center our thoughts around several ideas. Lord, are you asking us to, to acknowledge that some friends have been praying for us desperately to try to get us to acknowledge something or see something that is dangerous? Or are you asking us to be a certain kind of friend to keep praying, to have enough faith just to keep going. Lord, or have we been bringing a suffering and you're acknowledging that suffering and you can deal with it, but maybe you're pointing something just under that suffering. It's more dangerous. And Lord, are you the God who we can trust to forgive sin, but also to call sin, sin? Father, we need you. And so we practice these rhythms that we come before you in need of grace, in need of hope, and we practice it every week because we need it every moment. Lord Jesus, help us. Lord Jesus, help us. In just a moment when I say amen, uh, up on the screen you'll see some prompts of how we take communion or availability for prayer in the back. Man, if God's laying on your heart just to do one of those things or just to sit, man, we ask that you follow in obedience. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Come when you're ready.
Come when you're ready.